Hello, welcome back to So Hot Right Now. I'm Tom Mustill. And I'm Lucy Siegel, and this is episode two. Woohoo! <laughs> episode one, may we just recap, oh, please? Yes. Can you indulge me for a little bit? Sir David Attenborough, wow. Oh, that was so nice. Yeah, what a wonderful man. We've had some really marvellous responses already to that episode, so thank you, guys. Yes, thank you so much. We have got a lot of feedback, actually, and the thing that people took as reassuring, and it gave them motivation, was Sir David Attenborough said, Saying, keep on at it just keep going which is why you know we're here for episode two this is why we're here we will just keep yeah. plugging away keep plugging away you know you never know if it's going to work until afterwards our whole purpose just to restate is that we want to get better at communicating nature and climate because it's very urgent as we all know welcome to true spies the podcast that takes you deep inside the greatest secret missions of all time. Suddenly out of the dark, it's appeared Bin Laden. You'll meet the people who live life undercover. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? Vengeance felt good. Seeing these people pay for what they'd done felt righteous. True Spies from Spyscape Studios. Wherever you get your podcasts. Episode 1. Did you have any favourite feedback, Tom? Um, yeah, well, it's a kind of new experience for me getting get, getting feedback like this. Um, and there was a really nice one on the on the iTunes charts. I've got to say, guys, if you fancy uh, giving us any feedback, please do it there. Uh, it really it's really fun. And the the one that I liked was said, uh, "Beautiful voices, lovely to listen to whilst breastfeeding." That was unexpected. I mean, I've never had that before, but I'm really stoked. So, but do you think that person meant David Attenborough's voice? Oh, she said, thoughtful and intelligent presenters who let the guests shine. So I guess maybe, yes, maybe his voice <laughs> because we were letting him shine. Yes, I was really buoyed and cheered by people writing to us and saying that episode one made them think. Bob, for instance, thanks, Bob, says... Could we look at weather reports on radio and TV shows and the fact that how hot the weather is right now and it being set to break temperature records and all of that is always presented with great enthusiasm and smiles. He finds this to be strange and now you mention it, it is strange. Yeah, well, it's difficult though, isn't it? Because everyone loves it when it's nice weather. But the difference between nice weather and really scary weather... Um, is 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 not much it's just if you have like a long period of really hot dry weather then you're in loads of trouble like we've had lots of street trees planted in hackney over the last few months and they're all starting to die so even though it's really nice and everyone's in the park there is this scary element but you're right every time it's on the news the, the weather forecast will say some good news for you guys the weekend looks extremely hot and lovely but if that's also killing off all the trees and the grass um uh, maybe we need a bit more nuance in there. Yes, I want to do an episode on how we report the weather. Cool. Well, because this is all about communication, we want it, this podcast to be a conversation. Uh, and that means you guys getting involved in it too. It's not just for like uh, the masters to tell us what to do. We want feedback. We want to all learn and get better at it together. So yeah, join in. Yes, it's a collaborative effort. But this week, episode two... Oh man. What a big hitter we've got. If you thought David Attenborough was a big hitter, <laughs> here's another one. Amazing human 
who is, it's hard to think of, you know, David Attenborough, he's probably influenced more people's understanding of the natural world. It's hard to think of a human who's really affected climate and climate policy as much as this person. So we're stuck in a pandemic and we're all wondering, where do we go from here? So we decided to approach a person known to have a lot of good answers. And we began by talking about why we're all so busy during lockdown. I mean, it's so weird to be at a time where we're facing a giant crisis and then our instructions are to sort of negate ourselves and sit down at home. I would happily do that. I just don't have time. I want to make banana bread. I want to do the sewing. I want to sew the masks. I have no time. Exactly. That's my point. Here we are. There are four of us sharing this little house and we are just working four times as much as we used to. And this is in the context of the greatest pause in history. And there's something just so disjointed about it. There's such a cognitive dissonance. Anyway. And we, we're going to be so pissed off that we didn't get a pause. Yes. <laughs> we are. It feels to me like it's not really a pause. It feels like it's a gear change, oh. um, which is weird because we're physically in the same place, but everything is moving oh, faster. Oh, that's a much better. You get the cookie. Yes! Not again! He always gets the cookie. <laughs> uh, I love cookies. It's said about epidemics that they hold up a mirror to society. And in this epidemic, a lot of people do not like what they see. A poll today in the UK found only 9% of people want things to go back to normal after the lockdown ends. This episode is about where we go next and why stories are vital to get us there. Our guest today is, drum roll please, Christiana Figueres. She is the Costa Rican diplomat who, following the failure of COP15 back in 2010, and it was quite a failure, somehow managed to pick up the pieces and marshal almost every nation on earth to sign up to a global treaty, the UN Paris Agreement, which remains our best chance of staying alive. As ever, we want to talk to Christiana about communication. She works with a Tom too, Tom Karnak, and together they host the brilliant podcast Outrage and Optimism. Do check it out. And they've written a recent book, The Future We Choose, Surviving the Climate Crisis. It is really good and everyone should read it. Christiana, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Lucy. It's wonderful to, uh, to, to be in conversation with you guys. Where are you at the moment? Well, um, how how willing are you to be jealous? Not. Always. <laughs> Not, that, says Lucy. That, that, that sums up our personalities, actually. <laughs> well, I have to tell you uh, that uh, I, I am sharing a little house with four lovely people, my daughter, her boyfriend, and my dear work colleague, Marina Mancilla. We are way, 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 way down in the southern tip of Costa Rica, just a stone's throw away from Panama, uh, on the southern border of Corcovado National Park, which is the largest and most beautiful national park in Costa Rica. Uh, And in case I haven't made you jealous enough, we actually are woken up every day at 4.30 by the howler monkeys. 
and uh, anything that needs to be delivered to our doorstep is delivered by Scarlett Macaws. What can I say? Wow. So your Amazon delivery is our Scarlett Macaws. Is literally, literally done through, you know, tropical birds. Yes. <laughs> it's like wow. a Disney cartoon. Yeah. Well, it is. It is quite. Uh, we're every morning very uh, conscious of the fact that we're incredibly blessed and privileged to be sitting out, uh, not in the middle of a city, and uh, not in in four walls that are surrounded by urban buzz, but rather um, by greenery and and beautiful animals, some of which invade our home every night. We are totally invaded by crabs every night inside the house. Crabs. So, uh, yeah, big, big old crabs that just come in um, every night. So I am you less go. jealous. Very close to nature. Wow. <laughs> the crab thing, the crab thing sounds frightening. I'm less, well, I'm less jealous are. now. Yeah, yeah, no, they are a little bit scary. Um, they are blue and orange, bright blue and bright orange. Um, and, uh, and they get very, very angry if you try to take them out of wherever they're hiding. Uh, and in, in particular, they do not appreciate if they've already crawled, you know, into your bedroom and made themselves a little nest for the evening. And you think, well, I don't really want to share my bedroom with all of these crabs. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so, but you know, you, you have to um, be open to all different aspects of nature. I, I closed my eyes and for a moment I was there. That was amazing. Well, I'll, I'll send you a picture of the crabs. <laughs> yes, please. I'm, I mean, Lucy's not up for the crabs. I, I, the crabs is what sold it for me. <laughs> Lucy, I'll send you a picture of a red macaw. Is that more in your liking? That's definitely more my vibe. Definitely. Okay. We're actually, right. we're actually hearing a lot more bird noise in the city. So mm. yes. Not, yes. Not, we, where are you, Lucy? I'm, I'm, on the, I'm in Greater London, so I'm on the river out near Kingston in Surrey. And we have a lot of parakeets, but no, no macaws. But no plane noise because we get like one, right. one plane a day. We're usually on the flight path, so it's, yes, it's quite, yes, it's yes, quite yes. a revelation. And Tom? I'm also in London. I'm in Hackney, uh, surrounded by active construction sites. That keep on going. They keep on going. Wow. Let's just go back to crabs. <laughs> okay. Let's go back to the future because that's what we'd like to talk to you about today. All right. Okay. You've had such a distinguished career already that we could talk about that for a long time. But we, what we would like to talk about is what we're going to do next and why story is so important. And this is a recurrent theme in, in your book and in your podcast. So maybe let's kick off with that. Why mm -hmm. are stories so important if we want to survive the climate and nature crisis? Well, first, first, I think we have to agree on what we mean by a story. We're, we're not talking about a bedtime story. You know, once upon a time, there was a little princess. We're not talking about bedtime stories that we read to our children, wonderful as they are. What we're actually talking about is uh, a, an opening up of our sense of possibility and uh, I don't like to use the word narrative because it sounds too um, informal. It actually is, when we, when we say story, what we're doing is we are challenging our own cognitive limitations of what we think is possible or what we think the reality is or is going to be. And when we develop an ambitious, visionary story, what we're doing is 
we're breaking through the boundaries of that cognitive limitation into a window, if you will, into an, and peeking through a window into something that is not yet objective reality, but that as we harness our commitment and our collective wisdom and our determination, we can actually make that envisioned reality become an experienced reality. That is the most complicated explanation I have ever heard of the word story. I apologize. I like it, though. <laughs> I, I really like it. I, I'm, I'm into it. But I'm immediately thinking of the storytellers I know best, which is the mainstream media. And I'm wondering whether they are cognitively able and up for the challenge that you suggest because that's quite a lot of that's quite a lot of growth. Yeah, um, and I mean the, the the task of the media is in part or in great part to reflect on what is, not necessarily on what could be. I think that is an additional responsibility that some of the media are already beginning to wake up to, to realize that they do have such an influence on the way that we think that reporting or reflecting on what is without moving forward and breaking through that limitation of the cognitive boundary and beginning to reflect on what could be, that's only part of the job. All of us are understanding that what we did before is just simply not enough. We all have to stretch beyond what we used to do. And I think that is the stretch for media to go into the uh, what, what can be. And of course, my preference, uh, as you have those of you who have read the book, my preference is to stretch our cognitive understanding of what could be into the positive. Not because, you know, I'm on to some, I don't know, drug-induced trip, but <laughs> rather, yeah, I mean, some people go, what are you smoking when you, when you write that, you know, vision of the future? It is just so utopian. <laughs> Um, and that, you know, that that's not the case. It is actually fascinating that both of the both of the stories that we can weave about where we can be in just a couple of decades that are represented in this book, they're both entirely possible. We could either mm. be in a world of constant destruction and untold human misery, or we can be in a world that is much better than the world that we have right now. And somehow... We don't think about this. We don't think about how do we improve the quality of our life? How do we improve well-being? How do we improve the, the standards and conditions under which most people live in this world? Um, how can we not think about that? That's the whole point of being alive, for heaven's sakes. So I'm not on any drug-induced trip. I am looking <laughs> into what we have to do. I want some of what you're smoking. No, I'm joking. I'm joking. But as we emerge, Christiana, as we emerge from this, this which is more on the kind of misery end, I would, you know, maybe, do, do you think that it is going to be harder to keep that message of optimism or show where those opportunities lie that they are framed within that optimistic I won't use the word narrative, well, but I want to. Yeah, yeah, no, 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 that's fine. Um, you know, I honestly think that right now we're at 50-50. We can either emerge from this in an even more constrained context 
that we have constrained ourselves, by the way, by the decisions that we're making now, or we can emerge um, as a much better human beings that have developed the muscle of empathy and solidarity and caring for others, of which we're seeing many, many, many examples, right? I mean, it is, just look at yourselves, you know, right? How many people are you reaching out to that you didn't reach out to before? How often are we thinking about other people who have much, much less uh, beautiful working and living conditions than we do? We are definitely exercising that muscle. Is it going to be sticky, right? When you go to the gym, and I'm trying to exercise now more, but, but it's the same thing. You exercise the muscle, and then the point is you can only keep that muscle if you continue to exercise it. So we're all under pressure right now, and hence we are exercising this muscle of solidarity and caring for each other. Will we continue to exercise that muscle once we come out at the other side? That is what remains to, you know, to be seen. If this lasts long enough, and if we all consciously derive the benefits that are for us to harness about that exercise of muscle, of solidarity, we stand a pretty good chance of keeping at least some of that muscle tone. That's on the individual level. On the systemic level, it probably is even more dramatic because there again, we stand at a 50-50, you know, chance at a crossroads where the recovery packages, not the rescue packages that have to be put in place right now, um, but the longer-term recovery packages that all governments are beginning to design and will be putting place over the next three to 18 months, those recoveries will undoubtedly decide the carbon intensity of the economy for the next decade, if not for several decades. And that's the piece, honestly, that I am very concerned about because we thought that we had a pretty reasonable time of 10 years to cut global emissions by one half by 2030 and then be on track to meet the science-prescribed carbon intensity of the atmosphere and be able to live in a more or less manageable world. But that was before coronavirus. Now, what, what has happened is that the horizon of corona recovery, which is no more than 18 months because all of these economic packages that will rise into the trillions of dollars, they will all be assigned, authorized, and deployed over the next 18 months. And so that 10-year period that we thought we had for climate change has now actually collided and shrunk into those same 18 months because countries are assigning the scale of financing that they never would have mobilized, never could have mobilized, on climate change. And so if that scale of financing goes into high carbon assets and high carbon industries and high carbon everything, um, then frankly, we're screwed because there's nothing that we can do over the next nine years. So, you know, maybe that's one of the reasons why we're all working so hard right now, because timing has basically just shrunk unbelievably in front of our face. Uh, and when we thought that we had a medium-term runway to decide on climate, it's just not true anymore. We have a very short, uh, mm. short-term runway. I'm slightly laughing because I had a sort of like slightly mild question about timing that I've sort of 
thought about asking you, which I've just kind of ripped up metaphorically because you've <laughs> that's that's a really that's a real kind of call to arms and call to action. How do we grapple with that? We're all locked down. We're all in different places. How do we mobilize in the way that we need to 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 fit that time frame? Well, I mean, the, the interesting thing is that conversations and thought influencing and idea generation is now all happening the way we're talking, right? Uh, mm. Everybody locked up in their own little rooms or kitchens or, you know, bedrooms or whatever. Um, and we're all interacting this way. So in a strange way, mm. there's actually more access. Isn't that interesting? Mm. Access has been democratized by the fact that we're all in isolation. That is such a weird, unintended consequence. But now these conversations that we probably wouldn't have been able to access because we didn't get, get there, we weren't invited to the meeting or, you know, the plane or whatever. Now all these conversations are cyber conversations and there is so much more possibility for an effervescence of this understanding to actually come forward. Mm -hmm. And the effervescence of this, not that it's going to be one person or two people, it's got to be a very bottom-up uh, realization of what do we really want to create here. Honestly, no one in the climate movement would ever have asked for or imagined that we could have basically the putty in our hands to decide what the economy is going to look like and then mold the putty the way that we wanted to. Nobody thought that. I, we all thought, you know, this is going to have to be a long-term sort of massaging and, you know, no longer that. I mean, think that humanity has the putty in our hands right now and we are molding exactly what the economy, the global economy is going to look like. That is an incredible responsibility. And not only that, but there is much more input and much more space for trickle up, if you want, or bottom up informational conversations and, and thought development because of the way that we're all living, right? Mm -hmm. I, I tend to think that the event calendar has flattened out. Conversations have also flattened out. Mm -hmm. um, so it makes it... Frankly, it puts more responsibility on each of our shoulders. And in your book, you talk a lot about the internal processes that you have to go through to become a stubborn optimist. That this, like, like you were talking about flexing your like empathy muscles and working them out, that being an optimist isn't something that you're born with is the way we like to talk about it normally. Are you an optimist or are you a pessimist? You talk about like working at it because optimism is this force that enables you to create a new reality and it's your duty to pass on this optimism no matter how challenging like right now we're in this unexpected situation where in terms of communication we have this great power of many people having the same context the same experience right that's the a fantastic ground to share an optimistic story and, and we don't need to be in the media, any part of it, to do this. We're doing this in our conversations with each other. Everybody's had a conversation about, like, what next? Right. What do we want? So how do we seize this putty, whatever level of the conversation we're at, to make sure that we go down the path that we need to go down? 
Well, I think this comes back to your original question of, you know, what is a story and, and what kind of story do we want to create here? Because I understand optimism as a choice, right? As a choice, as a deliberate, intentional choice that we make. It's, optimism is not the result of seeing something happening out there and, you know, saying, okay, fantastic. It's actually about um, making a choice to harvest our ingenuity and our determination to collectively create something better than what is actually out there. And so for, for what me is optimism for you is the story, right? So what I'm mm-hmm. saying is let's create a story of well-being. That mm-hmm. is what we want. That's the world that we want. We want a story of well-being that is going to be the portal through which we walk because we have the story, we can walk through that portal and then create that well-being that we have actually imagined in our head. Conversely, if we imagine you know, more misery and more destruction, that probably is going to be the magnet toward which we work. We walk. So, you know, what stories do and what, um, what, what optimism does is it creates a magnetic force, if you will, that in, in my um, experience is actually very difficult to resist. It's a magnetic mm-hmm. force that pulls you forward, pulls you forward, um, and, and then you figure out your path on the way. No one can tell us right now what the perfect world is going to be. No one can tell us how do we get from where we are in this crisis to how are we going to emerge in 18 or 24 months. Nobody can say that. But if we have a picture of the destination of the kind of world that we want to see after these 18 or 24 months, then we start pulling that back and going, okay, if that's where we're going to be, what's the next step? What what is the delta between what we want to see and where we are now? And then we do it step by step. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. So I guess like a lot of the time in, with climate and nature s- stuff, a, l- a lot of the conversation, what, we're ta- what we end up talking about is like, oh, we don't want to go there. Or, oh, no, not that world, not that many parts per million in carbon. But what you're talking about is like as human beings who want to go to the nice place, to where the other people are, to the party, like y- you describe that, that future so that we're drawn to it rather than just a sort of negative description of what we want to avoid. Yeah, it's sort of a push and pull, Tom. So, you mm-hmm. know, if um, mostly, unfortunately, if you review the literature on climate, most of the literature is very dystopian because the fact is that unaddressed climate change really is an existential threat. And so you will read about, you know, all of the tipping points and what happens to the coral reefs and what happens to the glaciers and what happens to sea level rise and what happens with floods and fires. And, you know, I mean, it it really is the Armageddon, right? And, and, and unfortunately, it gets a lot of attention because our human attraction is toward that kind of drama and trauma. Um, And when in the book we decided to point to um, give the reader an experiential journey into two possible worlds, the world where we have not addressed climate change and the world where we have addressed climate change and created a better world. You know what was interesting is that the, the 
positive world was very difficult to write because there's very little information about it. Um, and, and, and so we had to, you know, really tease out of, uh, of several studies what that world would look like. But it's, it was very much of a push and pull because the destructive world, the dystopian world is one that we instinctively push against, right? We don't want that. But if you put out the utopian world, the world where we have actually, hello, little doggy. You see, speaking about nature, that's quite all right. <laughs> it's not, it's it. not a giant crab. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a giant crab, no. Um, so if, if we have a clear idea of what the possibilities are of the kind of world that we can create, then we generate a pull effect. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, honestly, I would much rather be pulled than pushed in my life. Hmm. I wonder how much of that is social as well. It feels like in a lot of the descriptions of the sort of apocalyptic Armageddon stuff, we don't talk too much about people. But a lot of what we're interested in, in people is other people and things happening with them. Like, I don't imagine myself in some future world that's saved from climate change, sort of alone in paradise. I imagine myself with my friends and what their like, lives are like and what other people's lives are like. And I don't really see this being talked about either very much in, in climate conversations. No, I agree. I agree. And, um, you know, just, just this morning, my attention was brought to um, a publication that now National Geographic is putting out. Uh, and they're putting out exactly the same thing that we have in the book. They're putting out, you know, a world in which we totally failed, and they describe that. And they're putting out the world in which we actually succeeded to deal with the various social and environmental challenges. Um, and so they're, they're following the same suit of, you know, let's really look at these two. Let's bring them up par on par, because as you say, um, we, we don't have enough imagination or enough information or enough whatever attention to the positive world. But if we really take the descriptions and the experiential journey, at least in our third eye, of what these two worlds would mean for me as an individual or for my daughters or for my younger friends or, you know, for anyone, if we really have enough similar granularity around both of them and put them side by side, well, which one do you think we're going to choose? But the problem is that we don't have enough granularity about the wonderful world that we can create. Mm -hmm. Is there an issue where, obviously, a lot of attention is hijacked by... Well, I mean, it goes beyond dystopian, if that's possible, but I'm thinking of the 45th president and I'm thinking of the kind of constant narrative stream of madness. Like, how, how, do, we, how do we get airtime for a positive narrative? You know, Lucy, I think that is a lot about mental discipline. Um, you know, how do we get airtime? The, the fact is that there's only one person that controls our thoughts. Who do you think that is? Hmm. Ourselves, hmm. right? And, uh, and so the more we allow for, uh, you know, insanity to occupy our thinking, the more we succumb to that. But if we stand guard at the portal of our own thought, uh, we actually have a very different experience. And so, you know, I'm not partisan uh, to those that export that responsibility to other people. 
Yes, there are some people that get a louder microphone than others, but it's not about the microphone. It's about whether you let the noise in or not. And do you want to have your mental um, attention open to all of the noise? Or are you actually focusing your mental attention on the signals? There is a big difference between signal and noise. And sometimes, you know, we're just too lazy and we just let all the noise come in and then it just completely takes over. Whereas if we can be much more discriminatory and much more careful about what comes in, we actually can choose to listen and follow the positive signals. And the noise will be in the background. How did you learn that? <laughs> That's such a good question. <laughs> How did I learn what? The difference between noise and signal? Yeah, and to just choose. I feel so, I mean, it's, it's, it's very simple when you say it and, and I'm thinking, yeah, that's what I should be doing. But I haven't thought of that. I don't know anybody who's thought of that. Is there a that. switch? Yeah. Yeah, well, the switch is just your decision. That's the thing, Lucy, mm -hmm. right? It's, it's not like we have to go to the, you know, I don't know, the hardware store and look for a, a, a really complicated electronic intelligent switch. This is not like installing a Nest system in your house, right? This is a choice. It is just a decision that it is as simple and as profound as that because it's both. Mm. It's simple and it's profound and it is totally transformational for your own experience. And the second part is certainly for your own experience, but the second part of that, which is where the miraculous part comes in, is that once you align your own experience with that, you begin to see that other people align themselves there and you begin to see that these pieces begin to work with each other. One thing that I was wondering was you mentioned who's got the microphone. In the climate movement, say you talk about the climate bubble, the environmental movement, quite often it appears that whole kind of dem demographies don't have the microphone. For example, over the years I've, I have complained to colleagues or commissioners that there aren't enough women who talk about climate, for example. And they'll say, you've got Christiana and you've got Mary Robinson. What more do you want? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> it happens. Lucy, I really hope that you're saying that as a joke and not as a serious answer from anyone. No, I'm afraid to say it has been a serious answer from many people. But do you think there do you think by sharing the microphone, there are still gains to be made in getting this story out there like what would we gain if we shared the microphone more and let more different voices tell these stories well um well definitely more female voices more young voices more voices of the global south um all of those three are still missing right because it is it is factually correct that most of the voices that get, or the voices that get most of the attention are male, global north, and upwards of even my age, and I'm already 63. Um, so that's pretty bad. That is really, that, that means a very, very small concentration that is not representative of the human population. 
So yes, I am firmly for more female voices, but let's not forget the other diversities that also need to be there. I am delighted that young people have taken to the streets in the, you know, in the very determined fashion that they've taken. And, and you all have seen how the media coverage of young people in the streets on climate just went skyrocketing, right? It went from all the way down here and then all of a sudden this huge spike. Good on the media, good on the media, right? That all of a sudden there was um, attention to these young people, by the way, mostly young women, because, uh, you know, all of those, all of those uh, groups in so many different countries, it's not just in Sweden with Greta, it's in many, many different countries, and most of them are being led by what I call young women, but actually they're even under 18. They are somewhere between 11 and 17, which is just astonishing mm-hmm. how brilliant and brave uh, these young women are. Um, so, so yes, I agree with you. I agree with you. And, and the best example of having succeeded in that is precisely the young people. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, you know, fantastic because they are definitely the most impacted by climate. The, the likes of me who are in our 60s, we will see some of the impacts of climate, but those who are under 40 will see um, most of the impacts. And hence, those are the voices that we need to listen to most. Who else? That's what I wanted to know. Who else you were talking to today? Jane Fonda. Yeah, Jane has invited me to join her on her Fire Drill Fridays, um, that wonderful program that she puts on on, on Fridays. Uh, and she usually does it like everybody else in, in real time uh, and very often in Washington, D.C., but she's home uh, in California and has invited me to, um, to virtually do the Fire Drill Fridays with her today. So speak about generational impact, right? Yeah. Very cool. Well, how are you go? How are you going to break it to her that I got the biscuit? Oh, it's okay. I'll make one more. Okay. Jane Fonda. Endless abundance, Tom. Endless abundance, remember? Yes. This future with all the endless biscuits, I'm in. I'm sold. I don't think it's Um, endless if you get one and Jane Fonda gets one. No, there's endless biscuits. Yeah, there's endless biscuits. Exactly. (laughs) Better be. So for people listening who might work in media, they might be storytellers, they, they might just be wanting to talk about this with their friends and families. What can they do right now? Like to make this better world more likely, in your view? Um, Well, a couple of things, Tom, because I think that they're all related. Number one, is this not the time when we are more with ourselves and with our loved ones than at any other time? Is this not the time to try to be the best human being that you can and to make that sticky once you can get out your door? Uh, because otherwise we're so distracted with, you know, having to get to work and having to do that, and yes, we're all working much more, but it is the best time to incorporate and integrate who we are at core as human beings uh, and to do that right now. And then, and then here is a little homework that everybody can do because, you know, we're all sitting in front of our screens. And so one thing that you can do when you sit in front of our screens is type into Miss Google um, carbon calculator and you will get a long list of institutions that have carbon calculators out there. So just choose anyone that you love and respect. Go in and figure out, because I'll ask you questions, what your personal carbon footprint is. What is it? How You know, we, we certainly know always what our... 
um, financial budget is and what our bank account looks like. How come we don't know what our carbon budget is? Uh, and uh, that'll, that'll be a sobering number to look there on the screen, especially if you then say, okay, now compare my personal footprint to the average footprint in India, to the average footprint in Tuvalu, to the average, you know, you choose, choose any developing country and just ask your, you know, screen to compare. And that'll give you a sense of where we are on this. Um, and then no matter what your number is, uh, it will definitely be a two-digit number as opposed to all developing countries. So once you get your number, um, figure out what you can do. Right now, while you're there at home, what can you do to lower your carbon footprint? If all of us who are at home, there's half the world's population are at home, if all of us right now, before we can get out our doors and back to schools and offices and all of that, if we all undertook some serious carbon reduction at home, that's time well spent. That's a that's a great, great lockdown game. It's, there you go. I like a lockdown like a lockdown pledge. Yes, it's pretty good. Yeah. Very cool. That's very brilliant. cool. When are you speaking to Jane Fonda? <laughs> I know, I need to get into my red thing because Jane only takes people wearing red. Oh yeah yeah for yeah. For her fryer drill. Yeah yeah yeah. We should have done a we should have done a color, a color scheme, Tom. Next time. I, I could put on a funny <laughs> Zoom background if you want. Uh, can I just say that that was amazing and it was like listening to a wizard. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. It's so a true. A wizard. Okay. I've been called many things in my life, Don, but this is the first time I've been called a wizard. I like it actually. Well, I, I think I think it is accurate. That okay. that is the the biggest the biggest compliment Tom can bestow. Um can I ask one last question? What does pura vida mean? <laughs> well, Pura Vida is the mantra of every Costa Rican citizen, uh, and we use it for everything. We use it to say, hello, how are you? We use it to say, uh, everything is fine. We use it to, you know, for, for everything. Uh, it's sort of our, our, our standard question and answer. Um, what it means is pure life. Uh, and I think it's um, very representative of the fact that we are a people who are very close to nature, not just now, but uh, traditionally for decades we have been. Uh, and we're also, I think, the only country in the world that has made it to number one three times on the uh, World Happiness Index. Why? Because we don't have an army, because we are very close to nature, and um, because we're such wonderful people. <laughs> it's amazing you don't have an army, and that money goes into education, right? You know what, Lucy? Thanks to my father. It's that it was that's it was some my legacy father that did that. That's well, those are big shoes to fill. I'm telling you, big shoes to fill. Well, you're not doing bad. <laughs> Good to see you all. Bye. Every interview we do makes me want to cry. She was amazing. She was totally amazing. I mean, like it's like going on holiday. Like you felt like you were in Costa Rica with her looking at the parrots. I mean, it's so like liberating just to get out of your head and just, I mean, I just feel like I'm now a global force for optimism, which I don't that often. I love it. I love it the way that she framed optimism as a choice. I find it so frustrating when optimistic people, and I like to think that I'm sometimes optimistic, are dismissed as being some sort of like soft in the head, unpragmatic, and also just like that that's an immutable fact, like 
like part of them rather than like it being something you can actually choose to do and flex your optimism muscles and get better at and that it's hard um i just it's also sorry this is my dog he just keeps showing his appreciation what's your dog called bobby bobby i'm actually going to change his name to bobby figueres bobby figueres wow works quite well yeah but i think it's it is it is a it's just a kind of like she doesn't care the whole kind of judgment and notion of being too utopian or blah blah whatever and being dismissed as not being realistic she just doesn't care she's moved past that point but you can see how she's an effective negotiator oh yeah because she sells you something that you really want to you want to be there you want to live where she's talking about it was brilliant and it's just applicable to everything like whether you're like a head of state or like just you or me it's I thought the bit that I didn't get to ask her about from her book was like she had this one sentence that I just thought was amazing or her and her and Tom did, which is that when the story changes, everything changes. And that sort of like really gets to the heart of of this stuff that, you know, stories feel like just words, but they're so powerful. When the story changes, everything changes. Okay, we, we, we need to interrupt her Jane Fonda meeting. Um, but I think that's a really good thing, actually, is that, you you know, we got this amazing opportunity to talk to her directly. But there is so much in that book, like you said. Yeah, it's it's like in re- I was reading it like really very quickly uh, to, so I could get ready for the interview. And I, I was just kept going like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, in fact, I'm actually going to go read some of it again now because I want to um, keep this moment going. Pura Vida. Pura Vida. I actually went to Costa Rica a couple of years ago, um, but I it, I went for a conference and I just stayed in the capital and it was actually really disappointing. I saw no wildlife apart from a crow, one crow, and um, then I came back. You didn't have any crabs in your bedroom? No, none. And no macaw delivered me any parcels. Oh. What a missed opportunity. There's a lot to think about. We'll be putting out quotes from the episode to share our social media, which is at SoHotPod. And on our own social media, I'm at at Tom Mustill, all one word. And I'm at Lucy Siegel on Twitter and at The Seagull, as in the bird, on Instagram. A woman of many handles. Yes, I won't go into the backstory, <laughs> but I kind of misunderstood Instagram initially and now I'm stuck with it. We're all learning. So we're going to put some quotes from every episode up there, which you can share if you want to. And... Uh, Hopefully that will be a way that we can spread further the wisdom that we've gleaned from these extraordinary people. Yes, because we're all about making a toolkit so we can all do this better. We'd really like to know what you learned from this episode and others. What were the standout points for you? And we'd also love it if you could give us a quick review. Yeah, Lucy and I are doing this podcast because we wanted to have an impact. We wanted to change the world. We want the, the, the stuff we learn from the people we talk to to go to as many people as possible. And so for that, we need your help. If you could give us a review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, that would be amazing. It all helps to spread the word. Please talk about this podcast so we can all talk about nature and climate. So Hot Right Now is a podcast created by Lucy Siegel and Tom Mustill. It is produced by Sony Music's Fourth Floor Creative and Picture Zero Productions. Thank you to our awesome and patient producer, Natalie Jameson. Thank you to our guests for giving us their time. 
and thank you to Chris Ketley for composing this beautiful music. Buenos dias, world, from the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance. I'm Marco Wint. And I'm Rick Schwartz. And we're your hosts for season three of Amazing Wildlife, a show from iHeartRadio Ruby Studio and the global conservation organization behind the San Diego Zoo and the San Diego Zoo Safari Park. Listen as we dive into the efforts here in San Diego and spotlight the heroes working worldwide to care for the species you know and love. Listen to Amazing Wildlife on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.